Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Prolific is an understatement when it comes to the visual artist Steve Keen. Having painted over 300,000 works, his distinctive style and technique led Time magazine to describe him as the assembly line Picasso. Longtime friend and fan Dan Ephraim spent six years compiling a photographic collection of Keene's work. And later this hour, both creatives joined senior producer Kim Drobes to discuss the Steve Keene art book. Plus, we shine a spotlight on comedian Malika E. with our series Speaking of Comedy. First, step inside a 19th century New York marketplace on the last night of Hanukkah for the new play The Golem, Storms of the South. A Frankenstein-like creature, the golem comes to battle the tormenting ghosts that have wreaked havoc on this Jewish community. But will the golem help the villagers or create more chaos? The interactive play was created by Louis Kuyper and the immersive theater ensemble. The show will be performed on Thursday at the Distillery of Modern Art. Louis Kuyper joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you very much, Lois. It's an absolute honor to be here. What inspired you to create this play? Well, I have been involved in immersive theater since 2014 in England. Started off working with the Secret Cinema. We did Who Framed Roger Rabbit. We turned a whole... 1920s art decor building into a, the Ink and Paint Club. And uh, I played a dancing penguin uh, in that show. And I'm from there, so, since 2014, I have been involved in immersive theatre and it has been a, sort of a core part of my performance experience and my love of performing. Louis, what brought you to Atlanta? 
Well, first came to Atlanta when I was touring with a show called Stomp. Uh, there was a drummer in, in that show uh, for about six years. And then I met a woman here and we, we had a baby. And then I left back to England and, and helped raise my daughter there. And then I came back after my daughter had kind of grown up. And I had friends here that I'd always stayed in touch with. And I knew that there was a good acting community here. That there was a thriving theater community here. And I'd been working in England as a theater maker and actor. And so I, I decided to come to come here and um, continue working here and, and bring immersive theater here. I know that it already exists here. Having worked in immersive theater, I, I realized that there was a new form of acting that was slowly developing immersive theater acting and it combines so many different elements of acting techniques that exist in separate arenas like improvisation is a huge part of immersive theater acting also method acting is in such that if you are in a, a space a room for example if you're an elf in santa's workshop and you are there and audience members are walking around you have got to be that elf a hundred percent of the time no dropping character and always 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 on that's the rule number one rule of immersive is you never break character and and that mixed with improvisation mixed with theater acting knowing where your other actors are knowing where you are in the story of the immersive experience and knowing what part you have to play in it all of those things combine and i thought god we've got a thing here which is which is a new form immersive theater acting so i've started the immersive theater ensemble here and, and i've been running workshops for quite a few months and i have cast this show the golem storms of the south from the immersive theater ensemble and and we're going to continue we've already done one show for the atlanta comedy awards which was held at pont city market i'm really really excited because everybody that comes can see how it's a different form and how the the current existing forms of acting all combine into this format. So when did you create the ensemble? It was this year, actually. It ah. was, uh, yeah, it was April 2022. Prior to that, I would produced plays here in Atlanta. I've got a feature coming out later on this year. I've, I'm in a, uh, I was in another feature, a couple of, fil you know, film, film acting and I started a thing called Shakespeare in the Ponce here, which ran for a couple of years. And yeah, I mean, I've just been building up connections and building up a community because I think that that's what is, is amazing about Atlanta theater is that it's, it's a good community that supports itself. Everybody that I've reached out to in various theaters around town, they have been very supportive of the show and anything that they can help us with. And I think that's, you know, it's so fantastic so it's so heartwarming to to know and i'm working with a, a producer called shelly schmals who is a fantastic magical sort of whipper up of events and uh, venues across atlanta and she connected us with um, the distillery of modern art who wanted to to do something at this time and so shelly and i 
we're both Jewish and we wanted to do something on Hanukkah. And so we were looking around for good story ideas. And the source material that we're using comes from a book called The Return of the Golem. And we thought, oh my God, yes, Golem. How does Hanukkah connect to a golem? The source material that we're using called The Return of the Golem, a Hanukkah story, has a golem. So the story is that, you, you know, that there's uh, people in the marketplace and they have their market and then they close the market and then they go home. And then a, a terror attacks the marketplace and destroys the Torah. And then two children see that and they go and fetch the rabbi and the rabbi is, you know, a Kabbalistic rabbi and um, summons up a golem to get rid of the, the terrorizing element that's descended upon their village. And he, he unleashes the golem to, to release, to get rid of them. But then as the golem gets rid of them, he, and this is traditional for, for pretty much all golem stories, the golem starts to go berserk and, and create and creates more havoc. And so then the rabbi has to remove the spell from the golem's head. And then the golem disappears and they can carry on with Hanukkah. See, I wanted to tie in that element with with our story of Russian immigrant Jews who have come over at the end of the 19th century, fleeing pogroms from Russia called the Storms of the South, which were basically 10 years of persecution of the Jews in the Pale of Settlement, which is now the Ukraine. And they fled from, from that because the sort of media and the establishment in Russia were were painting the picture of the Jews as as having conspired to kill the Tsar. And it wasn't true. So they had, you know, but nevertheless, they had their businesses destroyed, their families killed, absolute terror and persecution, often led by priests and led by, you know, police were complicit. And so they fled from there seeking a place in which they could practice their religion freely in which you know in a country that celebrated religious freedom then that's what the people in our show are celebrating ah, if you are just joining us this is city lights on wabe i'm lois Reitzes speaking with director louis kuiper about his new immersive theater experience the golem Storms of the South. Now, how does the audience interact with the actors in the show? The main point is that the audience are no longer just like bystanders of a theatrical experience. They're they're participants. And like sometimes they even co-conspire in the story. The, The audience experience like immersive theater through all of their senses through their like proximity to the action through engaging with actors and actors engaging with them the scene around them it's it's not formulaic it's 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 something that you just you know you can't sit down and chew popcorn to and tune out it's visceral it gets in and around you you're not a casual spectator it's challenging and and that is what i love about immersive theater often you know immersive theater can be you know people think of it as like a gimmick oh cool you know we have this this famous show that's coming through and then that you can walk into the world of this show but 
immersive theater can do so much more than that. It can thrust you into a world that you have no choice but to engage with. And in our show, they're thrust into a 19th century marketplace where they are going to be coerced into the market stores to explore the market stores. And most importantly, hear the stories, the real life stories of Russian immigrant Jews who have come over and have told their stories. And from there, they get to experience what it's like for these Russian Jews to, to live in this market marketplace and, and go about their life. So the audience are not going to be able to, to sit back and just and just watch, but you get a very personalized experience where you are transported out of out of your uh, world. There have been many depictions of the Golem in literature and drama. I, I wondered if there were any films or musical works that you drew from. Yeah, I, the Golem persisted throughout popular culture and even manifesting in modern day films, such as The Matrix. The, the, the Matrix, the machines in The Matrix were created by people as a technology to help them. But then they overtook society and became smarter and started to kill the humans. The same thing with uh, Skynet that was created in, uh, in the Terminator franchise. Skynet was created by humans as an artificial intelligence, which then became smarter and, and, and overtook. In fact, you, when you look at a Terminator, it looks like a golem, which is traditionally a very strong-looking human-shaped being that's big and tall and can do things that humans can't do. The Terminator is pretty much, you know, verbatim what a, a golem should would be described as. How in 2001 Space Odyssey, another golem, a technology that was created to help the community, i.e. the the space community, space exploration community, to discover space, but then that goes wild and 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 tries to, well, in fact, does kill the astronauts because it fears itself is going to be extinct. And then Frankenstein, you, you know, you mentioned Frankenstein in the opening, is a perfect example of a golem, literally created from dead human bits and then brought to life through lightning, electricity, and then wreaks havoc on the community and society searching for an existence. So the golem is a, you know, it's a universal theme. <laughs> I think that smartphones could be the next golem. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know oh my goodness. Because we might have a golem sitting in our pockets right now. That, you know, the amount of time that, you know, I, I see my daughter on it and I'm thinking, God, you are just taken over by this by this technology um you know it's it's social media might be another golem that's it created to aid our communication and sharing our lives but you know the amount of trauma that's come out of social media mental instability you know there's there's even been suicides from being bullied on social media it's you know that is a golem going wild the technology is taken over and it's a lesson that the golem in the Jewish law is a lesson to, to know that, you know, something that powerful can't go unchecked. 
because if it if it does go unchecked then the disaster that is could be unleashed is is far beyond the terror that you were trying to get rid of in the first place louis does this golem save hanukkah well i mean that's what the audience are going to come and find out i mean given the story of a golem which we've which we've just talked about it it would be sort of untrue to the story to say that the golem actually saved hanukkah because the golem goes crazy and causes more problems so you know i've looked at you know what goes beyond and what is more powerful than a mystical powerful beast magical character that can you can summon up as a technology to help you you know what 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 is stronger than sort of a life hack if you will that the golem essentially is it's sort of well we can't deal with this so we'll create a monster and and we'll fix it all it, it, the answer to that we sort of were looking at is is love and forgiveness and when the villagers realize that they realize that the the terror that's tormenting their village is part of their past it's part of their shame as part of their guilt of of the things that they either had to leave behind in the in the past or weren't able to reconcile with and so coming face to face with that their their love and their forgiveness is what trumps is what overpowers this terror more than more than the the golem the the golem does do its bit definitely and it's quite spectacular we have an amazing performer and uh, we're using a sort of circus stilt-based creature to to represent the golem and it's it's quite impressive but really what's more impressive is the human ability to realize that they are and they have love and forgiveness at their core and that is what drives you out of the dark times in your life because the story of hanukkah is is a festival of light it's always held in the darkest days of the year same with christmas a lot of people believe that it's a reminder that that lighter days are going to come that it's always held around the winter solstice it's, um you know there's the menorah there's the eight candles yes they represent the oil that burned for eight days in the temple but it also represents light is growing we are getting more and more light and this love and forgiveness that i was talking about is the light that these villagers are able to hold on to to bring them out of this dark times in their life and i think if anybody's ever had any dark periods in their life where they've they feel desperate and they don't know the next move forward i think love and forgiveness are two major themes that people can hold on to to bring them out of that whether they're forgiving somebody else or whether they're more often than not forgiving themselves for something that's for something that's happened and that's how you know hanukkah ties in with with this story and with the a sort of a common theme of people going you know struggling to be human director louis kuyper the golem storms of the south takes place this thursday December 22nd at the Distillery of Modern Art. More information is 
on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we shine a spotlight on comedian Malika E. with our series, Speaking of Comedy. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Time now for our series, Speaking of Comedy, where local comedians share their inspiration and stories from the small stage. What up, what up? I'm Malika E., a.k.a. the Georgia Nectarine, and I'm an Atlanta-based comedian. <laughs> Since I was young, I always used comedy as the way to be an icebreaker, as the way to meet new friends, as a way to ease tension between certain situations, as a way to just entertain myself as well as others. So something that came naturally to me. As far as the stand-up comedy, one of my friends used to always say from high school, you need to be a comedian, like as if I was here for her entertainment, right? So she decided I was moving a little too slow in that request once we became adults. And back in 2014, she got a few other friends to go and have at a stand-up comedy class at the Laughing Skull Lounge. And it literally took off from there. What inspires my comedic voice is just everyday things that happen to everyday people. Um, knowing that I may have seen something or I've been through something or done something and can find the humor in it and be relatable to everyone else because they may have seen it and, you know, been through it or known someone to go through it. I think that was, is what inspires me. As well as I grew up watching your Deaf Comedy Jam and your Comic View and to see so many comedians be able to have their own voice and bring their own stories that even as a child, I can still relate to, even though it may have been adult content, you know, they were still made it relatable and funny. So that's the kind of stuff that inspires me every time I get up on that stage, anytime I have a mic in my hand, anytime I'm writing. It's just trying to keep it true to me and also relatable to others. The one that used to get me was if you step on a crack, you break your mama's back. <laughs> My mama just don't know how many times I saved her shit. <laughs> <laughs> she made me, made me mad. I go outside, I'm like, Ooh! 
my sons ain't get they be out there. They must have been skipping on my So the joke I did in my clip was about superstition, something that we all have either heard about or some believe in, you know, stuff like older ladies like, don't put my purse down or, you know, walking and splitting a pole. And so this particular joke is the step on a crack and you break your mama's back. That was something I used to always hear when I was younger, Ruby outside playing. And I have done jokes about superstitions, but this one I have wanted to do and I always seem to forget. So it was really dope that with me performing, my mom was in the crowd and my sons were in the crowd. You know, so I was able to incorporate them in the joke and they got to hear me talk trash about them, you know, but it was still relatable to everybody because that's just something that we all have heard of at one point, you know. If I involve the crowd in my set, it's always in a positive way. I do not want to roast the crowd. Unless it's a heckler, then they're going to get it. <laughs> yeah, they're going to get it. But it, besides that, if you're coming out to see me, if I include you in it, it's because you are the egging me on. And I'm like, hey, you, not, you get what I'm saying? You know, for the most part, I like to do crowd work just to get people feeling good, get people to, to laugh. I don't want nobody to feel like, oh, and you got to put their head down like, oh, I hope she don't get me. I don't, I'm not that, I'm not that type, you know. If I do that, that means you started it. <laughs> Some challenges I have faced getting into this industry is just knowing how to get booked. How do you make yourself into a brand? How do you make yourself into a business? Understanding the business understanding that yes you are the business and you have to even sometimes create your own opportunities um, that is where I've had my most success anytime I've created my own opportunities is when others come knocking at my door but a lot of challenges that I have faced here and there have been uh, janky promoters you know <laughs> people over promising and under delivering trying to avoid those and just deal with people that are not just trying to get something out of you, but they are genuinely trying to work with you. I love being an Atlanta-based comedian because now it seems like this is the time for you to step in for any entertainment. Atlanta's like the new Hollywood right now. And though it's hard for me to say because this is where I grew up and it is bringing more people here and we're crowded. <laughs> I love it at the same time because you get to meet so many others and entertain so many others and learn from so many others that this is the, this is the place, baby. <laughs> so I just had my first one woman show, the Malika E Experience, and that was live recorded, sold out show really dope so be on the lookout i'm working on getting that distributed so if you follow me on my website malikae.com that's m-a-l-i-k-a-e.com or you can also follow me on all social media platforms at comedian malika e <laughs> comedian malika e more information about malika's work 
And our series, Speaking of Comedy, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, a conversation with the artist Time Magazine called The Assembly Line Picasso. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. The prolific visual artist Steve King embodies rock and roll attitude, Having painted over 300,000 pieces of art, his distinctive style and technique led Time magazine to describe him as the assembly line Picasso. Longtime friend and fan Dan Ephraim spent six years compiling a photographic collection of Keene's work and recently produced the Steve Keene art book with pictures and stories celebrating the unique world of Steve Keen. In August, the two creatives joined City Light senior producer Kim Drobes, and Ephraim explained how he first came across Keen's art. I originally ran into Steve's work in the New York City indie rock music scene in the 90s, and he was the first uh, artist, uh, painter that I had run across where um, he, he was selling his work at merch tables at these rock shows. And it just made such an impression on me and, and my, my friends and would-be colleagues in the music world where we were, in essence, going to all these different shows, usually in the same track, like same three or four clubs. Um, and we, you know, quite often would see his work at these clubs. And it just made an impression. And it the impression was not just that, oh, I really like this, but oh, I can I can afford hand-painted art and buy a CD <laughs> or, right. a, or a piece of vinyl or music from the band. Like I can support both. I, and it just was such a unique thing to me. It opened my eyes to the art world and that it, it can be for everyone. And it really made me feel included. Mm. And I think that's what resonated with people around the world about Steve's work. Some of, I mean, this is just one of the things, but you know, to me, this is this is where it started was it germinated from this music scene in, in the 90s. And Steve, that music scene was obviously incredibly important to you as well. And my understanding is that you were a DJ for the college station WTJU out of University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Can you elaborate on how your experience as a DJ and as an indie music lover influenced your artistic path? Well, yeah, my wife and I, we would do these overnight shows once a week or every two weeks. You know, we loved loved the new music. We were we were older than a lot of the students, so we played a lot of old music and kind of combined it with the new music at the time, which was then Nirvana had just like come out that month. Never mind. <laughs> and just to be in a basement surrounded by tens of thousands of albums and every album was somebody's dream that it was going to be the greatest album or or a record of how they lived for that year and the and their friends of that year and i've always loved people making homemade books little fanzines to promote 
you know, their writings or their music. And, you know, this is before people had websites. Nobody had a computer at home, really. And I just, I just got so connected to the idea, well, how come art doesn't seem fun like this? You know, I went to art school, I did all the right things, you know, and I loved, loved making art, but I didn't really know how to connect to have an audience or what kind of people would like my work. So all that stuff, I just kind of threw away and kind of decided to not even think of myself as an artist, but as a person who makes information, little bits of information that go out in the world. And the way rock bands would have to be brave enough to, you know, get in a van with their friends and drive seven hours and maybe eight people would be at the show and they'd have a shoebox mm-hmm. of cassettes or CDs that they would try to sell. And I just thought that was so brave and exciting. So that's stuff I think about every day. Yeah, no doubt. You know, you mimic that bravery with live demos that you've done and your art shows where you paint hundreds of works at once. It's very interactive. When we talk about bravery, were you scared the first time you did a show that included basically a live performance? Um, I don't know if I was scared. The first time I actually had a real show, it kind of caused a little bit of controversy. It was in Philadelphia at an art school and some of the art teachers didn't like it because I was painting live in the front window and it ended up written, written about in Time Magazine. And it was, I just thought it was so, so funny. What I'm doing is not controversial. I'm painting pretty little pictures in a window, but the fact that that, <laughs> that could be controversial really gave me the energy and gave me the feeling, wow, something like this rocks, you know, that people have a strong opinion about. So I thought there must be something there to it. That makes sense. Usually when there's a strong reaction, there is something behind that. And so do you prefer live demos versus painting on your own? Which informs your work more? Well, I paint, I paint um, basically six days a week mm-hmm. at home. So when I, when I get to do a live thing, it's pretty fun. And it's, it's a strange power. You have to kind of, you don't want to be impolite to people, but you have to, you have to kind of create this sort of zone of space around yourself that people don't want to talk to you because a lot of times people think because I'm making something, they think, okay, I can, I can interact with that person because I go to the bakery and I see them making cakes or I go to the pizza parlor. I see them making pizzas. So if I see another person making things, I can connect. But for me, it's as if I'm on a stage playing a song to them. So that's, that's the difference. Yeah. And I would also wonder if that pizza maker would really want to be talked to <laughs> while he's making pizza. <laughs> he might not. Yeah, he might yeah, not. He's into his thing. So your pieces have a lot of repetition in them. Can you try your best to explain your process? I know it might be a difficult thing to communicate, but it is absolutely fascinating. Well, I love painting multiples of the same image almost like I'm making prints. So I line up the amount that I'm going to paint for that day or that week, depending on how much space I have. And basically I'll do about 40 or 50 a day. And then I'll line up all the panels Mm -hmm. in a logical sequence. And I'll start off with the first color, you know, it might be blue. And I just put my blue spot on all the paintings. Then I go back with the other colors and, and, start with big brushes and end up with smaller and smaller, more detailed. 
And then at the end, I sign my name or write a few words. And it's so they're basically started at the same time and finished at the same time. And for me, wow. it's I've always loved like art, American art of like the 40s and 50s and 60s, where it's either minimalism or things like Jackson Pollock when I mean, he felt he was in his paintings when he created them. He felt that there was no um, separation between him and the work. You know, it became a performance. And so those are my, besides music ideas, I think a lot about the sort of abstract expressionist ideas about becoming into the painting. I love that. So Dan, with Steve having such an incredibly large body of work, how did you go about choosing what to highlight in the book? Well, it was a fascinating challenge. Uh, Originally, the idea spawned from a show that I put together with with Steve and Shepard Ferry and Amanda Ferry in Los Angeles. And I thought the show was so successful. This was in 2016. The show was so successful and I had documented and archived the works for this show. I thought, oh, that, that sounds like a good way to start a book. That will be the book. I've got these images, you know, and Steve, of course, is so prolific. You know, he delivered hundreds of paintings to the gallery at that point. So it was a, theoretically, it was enough for a book. But then as I started getting into trying to fund the the campaign and listening to the Kickstarter, uh, you know, crowdfunding patrons who were supporting the book, I started to think, oh, wow, you know, there's so much, of course, I've known his work and have stuff of his, you know, stuff of his that's, uh, you know, a couple decades old at this point. But uh, I just, I thought, wow, there's so much more here. And maybe this is the book. Who knows if there's more than one that will get made. So maybe I should make it more of a monograph, uh, make it more comprehensive. And so really one thing led to another and I had developed an Instagram account for the book and the campaign and had these followers. So I thought, well, let's put it out to the, to the masses. What do they have in their collection? I mean, it's impossible to cover all of his work. It's, it's insane actually, but (laughs) I tried to, I tried to put, you know, as broad a swath of what's out there as I could representing from each decade that he's been working and doing the best I can. And, And really this is a, big book and I'm really proud of it, but it, it can't represent, you know, his, his life's work. It just isn't that. Um, I think Steve said this before and, and I, I like this. Uh, it's a greatest hits, like a, an album or an art, a music artist. It's a greatest hits. That's what it is. But it doesn't mean that these are the only hits <laughs> right. as a lot, as, as, you, as your listeners know, um, you know, some of the biggest artists in the world will release, you know, tons of greatest hits albums and packages and playlists and so forth. And this is just a small smattering of what I could get my hands on. What, And then I had people send me their collection to my apartment in New York City. And I photographed all of the paintings in my my little apartment here in New York. And that was the book. And so aside from all of these wonderful photographs, the book also includes written pieces from many an indie rock icon. And it seems like many indie rockers wanted to have their voice heard in praise of Steve's work. How did you decide who to include for that part? Well, again, for me, this was, this project was kind of written for me in a way, I think, because I, I'm already familiar with the scene, if you will. These are the same people that were 
if they weren't in New York City location-wise, they didn't live here, they played in the venues that me and a bunch of my, you know, my colleagues would venture to and see Steve's work. So, you know, when you talk about, um, you know, uh, the different names that are involved with this, they were playing in New York or performing in New York, they saw Steve's work, um, they were already fans and I knew how to reach them. So, Thankfully, uh, they were, you know, these these folks were very generous and, and and decided to to jump in. And really, it's a testament to Steve because I didn't have to do a whole lot of arm twisting. These were people that wanted to let people know how much they appreciate um, what he does. That's fantastic. And so you've both mentioned the indie rock scene of New York City. But Steve, you started out in Charlottesville yeah. with your DIY ethic and very democratic way of, of giving away stuff or selling it for incredibly cheap. What was it like in the early days when you started to see your own work everywhere? Gosh, I loved it because I had been painting, you know, for 20 years before that. I've been, you know, ever since elementary school, you know, I'd come home and paint every day. I was just like, that's what I did but I didn't know what I wanted my art to do. I wanted my art to be useful, to have a purpose. And so if everybody in Charlottesville had one of my paintings, it was like everybody in Charlottesville had a magazine or something from the restaurant that I cooked at, something like that. It felt mm. like it was useful. It felt like useful decoration. I love that. And so as far as your different bodies of work, we talked briefly about the album covers that you've designed, but a large portion of your work is also recreating album covers in your paintings. And I was wondering where the decision-making process for that starts. I love album covers. I love um, love the whole idea back in, you know, when I was a kid, you'd go to the record store and you'd have, you'd have $6 and you'd stand in the record store for an hour and a half deciding you know, if you were going to get the Almond Brothers album or Derek and the Dominoes album or something like that, you would just look at these covers and just it would just be like, you know, obsessive viewing of all these all these things. And so when I paint albums now, it's sort of like I'm making memorials to the past, you know, because I don't even know if people, you know, when people get their music. I don't know if they even connect that there's a like a, a static image that goes with that body of work that they're getting, you know, at the time when they, I don't even know how people get music now, but, you know. I was going to say, it's changed so much. <laughs> but it's like, they just seem like place marks of a certain time. And I just, you know, I love, I love crazy albums. I love good albums. I love albums that I'd never want to listen to. I just, you know, which is funny to me because I'll paint a lot of things that, a lot of people will, not, will be like, well, I love the way you painted this, but I, I would never want to hang this in my house because I don't like that band. And I thought that was the funniest thing in the world. And, I, and it's sort of, in some ways, I think it's my favorite thing in the world, the fact that there is this tension because it's not, you know, it's not that record. It's a painting of that record. <laughs> you know, when we talk about how cheaply you sell your artwork for, that hasn't really changed very much over the years and on your website you sell them in random batches yeah sometimes they turn up on ebay with a significant markup how does that make you feel that's terrific for me because i also put things up on ebay if um 
you know, if I feel like it, if I have, you know, extra stuff and people will see, oh, that guy's um, selling it cheaper than the other dude. So I'll buy his right away. So I think, I think it's, I love, you know, I, I don't feel in competition. I feel that honestly, one of my goals has always been to kind of make something that was like an American collectible. Like my parents always had stuff. My dad was a civil war historian and my mom always had different pieces of China and our house was filled with this stuff. It was kind of like a museum in a weird way. I love the fact that the stuff that they loved, you know, you could see it in a museum or you could see it in a catalog or you could see it other places. And now I'm making things that are in the hundreds of thousands and people resell them and they think of them as just a Steve Keen painting. You know, that's my name. And it's like, oh, it's a Steve mm -hmm. Keen painting. <laughs> it feels like I'm publishing something. It feels like I'm, you know, just putting this idea out in the world. Like, I've always felt that I was doing one painting and it every day gets broken up into tiny pieces and just everybody gets to have a piece of it. So it's like, it seems like 30 years ago, I started one painting and I'm still working on that one painting. Oh, elaborate on that. Tell me more. Because the way I work, I'm hard on myself, I think. And I never really knew what a good painting was for myself. You know what? You know what something good is when you go to the museum. Hmm. But for yourself, I wanted to make it more like a, a diary, like a piece of something that I didn't have to judge myself on and just sort of record how I felt that day. I mean, maybe people can't tell the difference between the days, but some days my stroke might be more agitated or calmer looking. But I just felt that I wanted to come up with something that I didn't have to judge myself, but I knew I was trying my hardest because so much, so many things, you know, it's like people don't do it because they think that they have to be the best at it or it doesn't matter. And I, I just wanted to do something middle of the road and go full on middle of the road with my pictures and not have to worry if they were really good or really bad. I love that. So a way to get past judgment and fear. I believe that's, you know, I know there's like there are different religions that probably speak upon that idea. And it does make me calm. It does make me think, you know, I never intended my art life, my career, if you call it that, to be this way. But I've it feels... Um, like I've created just a place for myself that I never want to like leave. So you mentioned, Dan, that a lot of the original work and idea of photographing came from this art show that Shepard Fairey decided to put on. Steve, can you speak to how your relationship with Shepard began? Well, Dan really kind of, you know, put it together. He produced that show and like, I didn't even know that Shepard knew who I was, but it was like fun oh. that he did. And it's, um, it's just really, you know, amazing. Shepard Ferry's done an awful lot <laughs> in this world. And he's, um, it's just kind of incredible that I'm anywhere near him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Understandable. So Dan, how did you become aware of Shepard being a fan of Steve's? Well, the short answer to this is I had worked with him on uh, in it you know uh, kind of once one person removed on a project a few years before I contacted him about Steve so I sent an email that just said subject Steve Keen uh and I and nothing else I don't think I said dear 
Shepard or anything. <laughs> I just said, I, I just wrote, are you a fan? And my name. And, you know, I swear I got an email back within 20 minutes. It's, it's Shepard. And he had emailed back. He's like, what, what about Steve? I'm a huge fan. Mm. Uh, so some, I'm paraphrasing, of course. But and so I just said, well, uh, if you're a fan, um, would you be interested in I literally I think I pitched him right there. How about a show? And he responded almost immediately. I mean, this, it's, it's a crazy story because it was so of the moment. Um, and I think it just really <laughs> shows you like how inspired and how honest he is. And I just think that that's a real, you know, it's a really important thing for the book. The book really couldn't have happened without this type of spark. I mean, looking back on this, you know, he's a huge part of this for a number of reasons, but you need your champions. You need people that will stand up and say, I believe in this. And um, yeah. I'm, I'm proud to say that I believe in this. Um, Steve's been inspiring to me for decades. And I'm really, really, really proud that all these other people, without any uh, hesitation, jumped up and said, I am too. Yeah, it's pretty wonderful to see an artist you love fanboying over another artist you love. That's just, (laughs) that is absolutely a beautiful thing. Well, to close out, Steve, I wanted to ask you, a lot of people I know think of you as a folk artist, which I think factually, as far as terminology, isn't completely accurate, considering that you do have classical training and went to Yale Art School. How do you want to be remembered? Do you consider yourself still an outsider? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm influenced by folk art, like Howard Finster, and um, even Morris Katz, this guy that painted about 100,000 pictures in New York City in the 50s. And you can find his work on the sidewalks every once in a while, and I did. And um, I love the idea. Something that wasn't supposed to be respected later becomes cherished. You know, the idea that people don't really know what to make of it at the beginning, then is loved at the end. And I think of folk art being like that. It's meant to be just the work of an eccentric. And then people see that it has, you know, traditional beauty in it like you know like real art real art well you are indeed a real artist steve keen what a pleasure this has been and dan Ephraim, thank you so much for creating this book it has been a joy to speak with both of you thank you much thank you so much artist steve keen and producer dan Ephraim, speaking with city lights producer kim trobes More information about this Steve Keen art book is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The Children's Museum of Atlanta is celebrating Kwanzaa on December 28th. Kwanzaa is an annual celebration of African-American culture over the course of seven nights. Each night highlights one of seven core principles known in Swahili as Nguzo Saba. To celebrate the holiday, the museum will host a special performance by the Atlanta nonprofit Julie Kellen. Kristen Carter Parrott, one of the co founders and directors of Julie Kellen, shared the company's mission. 
Jolie Killen is a Bamana word that means one blood. And we encompass that notion of one blood with every show and engagement that we do. We focus on traditional and diasporic African dance, music, history, visual arts, and everything that encompasses our journey from Africa to where we are today and beyond. The performance is at 3 p.m. on Wednesday, December 28th. More information is available on their website, childrensmuseumatlanta.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll share our first annual Producers Picks program. If you missed part of today's show, like our earlier story about the immersive theater experience, The Golem, Storms of the South, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.